Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, opposite of the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us what will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished. This is the word of the Lord. The philosopher and theologian G.K. Chesterton wrote, It is only the fool who tries to get the heavens inside his head and not unnaturally his head bursts. The wise man is content to get his head inside the heavens. This morning we're going to continue our walk through the Gospel of Mark in our series titled Following Jesus. And if you remember, we began this series with a focus on discipleship. What does it mean to follow Christ? What does it mean for us to be his disciple? That is the framework by which we have, we've been working our way through each and every individual text. Now, why would we have that as our focus? Well, it's because that's what we are called to. Every one of us who comes to faith in Christ are called to join Jesus' life-saving mission. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and he saved us And he commissioned us to join him on that mission. Jesus said to go into all the world and make disciples of of what? The nations. He said make disciples, not just converts, but disciples. People who follow Christ. Well, if we're going to be the people who teach other people to follow Christ, then we need to know what it means to follow Christ ourselves. And that is what this series has been about to this point. It's about discipleship. Discipleship has been the focus of this series, and Mark has been perfectly suited for that end because it is a fast-moving narrative that records not just what Jesus taught, but so much of what he did. In fact, Mark records more miracles than any other gospel. And what we see in this gospel is that we see how Jesus behaved and how he treated other people. And so there's a lot of content. There's been a lot for us to learn. And our emphasis has been to take, the way we approach each passage is to take what we learn from the text theologically and transfer that and apply it to our lives and ask the question, how do we live in this practically in the world around us? What is Christ calling us to do? In light of the text is the question that we ask. How How are we supposed to live now we know the truth? How are these truths supposed to shape us into his his image? And and we certainly search the text for theological truths because theology does matter. 
Right? We search the truths you know, about God and mankind and about what Christ has done for us, but we take those theological truths and we seek exhortation, we seek application so that we can grow and be disciples, the disciples that Jesus is calling us to be. And, and this right here is important for us to keep in mind as we begin to examine this next series of texts. Because chapter 13 has a lot to teach us And there's a lot of things to apply, but chapter 13 is the most difficult text in all of Mark to actually work through. Because it's the most difficult text to interpret and to rightly handle. I'm just going to be upfront with you. This is the chapter that I had been worried about preaching through for quite some time. I've been, I spent a lot of time thinking, I've spent a lot of time praying and trying to figure out how to actually preach this text in a way that is actually edifying. Because it is a difficult text. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, says this. He says that chapter 13 is by far the most difficult passage in the book of Mark. He goes on to say, The fact is we have yet to find a scholar who can perfectly unravel the knotty problems of the Olivet Discourse. He says the study of it requires a proper humility and a willingness to admit that we don't know everything. Likewise, Danny Aiken in his commentary says that Mark 13 is a difficult text to interpret with faithful, Bible-believing teachers differing on the details. What he's saying is there's a lot of faithful, theologically sound, orthodox-believing Christians who would call each other brothers in Christ who would disagree about the details of this text. Scholars, I mean, I've read a lot, scholars even struggle to even classify what kind of genre, what kind of text this is. Some say that Mark is an apocalyptic text because, because it has apocalyptic elements like Daniel and Revelation. But on the other hand, it doesn't have all the apocalyptic imagery that those other books do. Some say that this is an extended discourse where Jesus teaches his disciples at length. In fact, chapter 13 is the longest connected teaching section in the book of Mark. Right? And it has a lot of teaching in it, but, but much of what Jesus says isn't just exhortation. It is prophetic. Some scholars see this text as Jesus' farewell discourse because he leaves the temple right, for, for good. He, he doesn't come back. And then he goes and he's crucified. And this seems to be a fitting farewell conversation. But the problem is, John records, Jesus has a lot more to say after this at the, the Last Supper and even, in, even on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. So the fact is, is even the scholars, the best and the brightest, struggle to really categorize and classify this text and to say that that there's any sort of consensus within Christianity or among Christian leaders to say that, 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 that people all agree or the major Christians would agree on this text is to be naive, to say the least. In fact, the only consensus you're likely going to find Within Orthodox Christianity, this, is this text is ultimately about Jesus. It's ultimately about judgment. And there's a call in this text for us to be watchful in chapter 13. There, there, the truth is there are churches and preachers that we all know and respect who have different points of view. R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur, men who, are, who were close friends when, when R.C. Sproul was alive. Close friends. 
Two men that have done many things in ministry together. Two men that have influenced my, my personal ministry in my life. These two men did not agree on how to interpret the details of this text. Just kind of goes to show you. There's no one dominant Christian view. And so this is indeed a difficult text. Not to mention, there are three important issues, relevant issues today, making this text even more difficult and complicated. There are three issues that we need to face and deal with up front. And I'm hoping that people who hear me today will then hear the rest of this, and those who hear the rest of this might go back and listen to what I'm saying today, because I don't want to have to do all this in review. <laughs> all right? But the first one is that the first issue that we have to face is people's just natural fascination with the subject of the end times. Because if there is something that fascinates people around the world, right, particularly Americans, if there's anything that will grab people's attention is the subject of the end times or doomsday as secular people put it. People are fascinated with, with the subject, with the idea that the world's going to come to an end, hence all of the books in all of the dystopian movies. Danny Aiken in his commentary says that few subjects spark greater interest than the study of eschatology, which is the theological word for the end times. And he says Christians and non-Christians alike are fascinated by the issue. I've even heard it said that if you want to fill up your church, you need to preach on sex. And if you really want to fill up your church, then preach on, on the end times. And if you really, really want to preach on the church, then talk about sex in the end times. The fact of the matter is, is if we decided to be a church that focused on eschatology here on Sunday mornings, and that's what we talked about all the time, and we gave prophecy updates, we would actually fill this place up. And I've even had someone even suggest it to me. Hey, you know, we would have more people in church if you would just preach on, on the end times more. That may be true, but let me tell you, that's not a good thing. It's not. It's not a good thing that people are obsessed with the end times. It's not a good thing, right? That's what it takes to get some people into church. The fact is this fascination with the end times can become an obsession for some people. Many people who call themselves Christians, this distracts the church actually from the gospel itself, the end times, which is an important doctrine to think about. But because it fascinates people, can get in the way of the gospel itself. I know people who call themselves Christians who can tell me everything there is to know about the connections between Daniel and Revelation, and people who can tell me all the details about the charts and the different dispensations throughout history, who can, who can tell you the flow of the book of Revelation itself, but they cannot clearly articulate to you what the gospel is. They can tell you all about the rapture, and they can tell you all of the texts that support the rapture, right? But they can't articulate or describe for you or walk somebody through a gospel presentation, the actual gospel. One of the most revealing questions that I have ever asked in my years as a minister of the gospel, to ask believers one simple question, what is the gospel? As simply as you can, put into your words what the gospel is. And most Christians that I have run into cannot adequately express it. They either leave something out, an important detail out, or they just end up including things that aren't really essential and that really muddies the water. But so many people can quote to you, when you hear wars and rumors of wars, or 
you know, I'll, let me tell you my, my theory is of the abomination of desolation. They can tell you all of that, but they cannot articulate the very gospel of Jesus Christ that saves people, that brings people into the kingdom. The obsession with the end times has cost the church big over the last century. The obsession with the end times has cost me personally in my own life, nearly a decade of my adult life. I don't want to bore you with my, whole sto- with my story, but suffice it to say, it was a big obstacle for me coming to faith in Christ. The second issue that makes this more difficult to interpret is we have a tendency, all of us, every one of us, including this guy right here, we have a tendency to interpret this text in light of the assumptions that we bring with us when we read a Bible text like this. Because we all have assumptions. Every single one of us have assumptions. Things like our traditions. The fact of the matter is, is most people who have an end times perspective have an end times perspective because that's what they were taught in a church and it sounded good to them and that's what they believe. Right? And, and I'm not saying that's, that's necessarily a bad thing, but what I'm saying is most people believe what they believe without actually critically examining what they believe about the end times. You were just taught it in church, it sounded good, and this is what we believe. And it's the same thing when it, with things that we were taught with kids. If you, especially if you grew up in church as a kid, there are things that you heard. I, I hear people all the time talk about things that they learned in church as a kid that really that they struggle to unlearn. But especially about the end times. If, if you learned it and it just became part of your culture and part of the lingo that you talked all the time, it's just naturally ingrained. And we then take that, those assumptions that what I taught was true, I, you take that and read that back into the text. We also have assumptions about the world around us. All of us make assumptions about the world around us. Let me ask you a question. Is the world getting worse or better? And the answer to that question is it really depends on where you live. But how we see the world, whether it's getting bigger, darker or, or whether it's getting better, really influences how we're going to see a text like this. Same with our assumptions about history. And what we know about history, what we don't know about history. And I promise you, people who actually know history, especially first century history and Jewish history, will will tend to look at things differently than those who don't, because they have a different context and a framework. But I think the, the, the most important assumption we bring to the text is our American assumption. In fact, I think it's probably the most difficult and dangerous of all assumptions is we tend to look at the Bible through the lens of America and American culture and America's future. And it's natural, right? Because it's where we live. It's, the, it's, it's, it's who we are. It's what we know. It's what we're surrounded in. It's like saying to the fish, like, you know, you need to like unlearn the water that's around you. You know, we're immersed in this culture. But what we do is we, we tend to look at the world around us and the condition of the things around us and we read that and, and, and we take our, what we see and what we hear and what we feel and we read that into the Bible. We think that since things are bad or getting worse in America, then, then the world must be approaching some sort of worldwide tribulation, which means the end is coming soon. Why? Well, because things are bad in America. That's, that's just kind of like the, the default that we feel. Many of us think that, that you know, Many of us actually think this. I mean, I hear it all the time. I mean, I've actually had people, more people than ever, saying to me, Jesus is coming back soon. And I go, why? I mean, like, I'm, I believe he's coming back. And I believe he can come back, like, right now. I mean, I'm waiting for him to come back, right? But they say he's coming back soon. I say, well, why do you believe that? Well, because look what's happening around us. 
What, what about the rest of the world? I heard people say, you know, the rapture must be near because America's falling apart. That, I, I don't see that in the text anywhere. I actually heard a prominent Christian podcaster, somebody that I have a lot of respect for, right? She was interviewing a pastor and she said that America is really the last hope for the world to spread Christianity. It's like, what? America is the last hope for the spread of the gospel because if America collapses, she said, then we are doomed. And, and you know what's funny is a lot of people really feel that way. They think that if America is gone, then the rest of the world is going to go right with it. Many people have this sense that, that God actually needs us. That God needs America to survive so that it can be the beacon of hope and so that the gospel will spread around the world. Now, please hear me. If you know me, you know I love this country. You know how I feel. You know that I'm a patriot, that I'm praying for our land to be healed. I'm praying for God to restore, you know, who we have been historically. But let me be very clear. Christianity will flourish and continue to spread and will continue to bring the kingdom of God to the rest of the world long after the United States of America has gone the way of Rome and the way of Greece and the way of Babylon and the way of Persia. God does not need us. God does not need the United States of America. We need him. And the thing, and things being bad in our context, doesn't mean that he's completed his mission yet. We need to stop looking at the Bible through the lens of the new cycle. We need to stop assuming that no one in history has experienced worse things than us. We need to stop assuming that gigantic, horrific, cataclysmic things haven't happened in the past. They have. And nations have risen and nations have fallen. And there have been cataclysmic natural disasters that have claimed millions of lives. And there have been wars that have shed oceans of blood. Just Google all the major wars in history and you will be astounded by battles you didn't even know that happened and that claimed hundreds of thousands of lives in a day. But through all of that, the world keeps turning. And by the way, God is sovereign over all of that too. We need to stop seeing ourselves as the most important generation that's ever existed. And I say that, I had to start telling me that. God will fulfill his plan in his way and in his timing. Now, the third thing that makes this text even more difficult to interpret, and it's really probably the most heartbreaking of all of the issues, it's the issue of the lack of grace that people have for one another with respect to differing points of view when it comes to the end times. This is the awful truth that we as Christians can certainly beat each other up over things that are really, in the end, are not essential. People argue about the end times as if it's the, an essential gospel issue. In fact, this church right here, this very church at one time, for a brief period of time in its history, demanded that you had to hold to dispensational theology and demanded that you must affirm pre-tribulation, premillennialism in order to be a member here. Most people don't even know how to say that. I struggle with premillennialism, you know what I mean? And all the other millennialisms, you know. 
But you had, to be, you, had to, you had to affirm those things to be a member here. If you didn't say, I agree with exactly that end times perspective, then, then you couldn't be a member here. In fact, if you had, were somebody who began to ask questions and begin to think that maybe I have a different point of view, you could be removed from the church because you had a differing point of view. Praise the Lord, it's not like that here anymore. But it's like that in many other churches. But it shouldn't be that way. Because really... End times beliefs are what's called a third order doctrine. I don't want to get too technical here, okay? But, but in essence, a first order doctrine is of most importance. It is, what's it is what's required to be a believer. First order doctrines are things like the belief in the Trinity. If you don't believe in the triune God, you can't be a Christian. If you don't believe that Christ is God in the flesh, you can't be a Christian. You don't believe in the virgin birth or that the Bible is actually God's word. There are essential things, first order things that are not negotiable. You cannot be you know, part of the family of God unless you believe and affirm those things. Then you have second order doctrines. Things that don't actually you know, test orthodoxy, but they do create barriers between congregations. For example, Modes of baptism is probably one of the clearest examples of a second-order doctrine. Baptism is important, but exactly how, how it's performed is not, a, is not a salvation issue, if that makes sense. And so our Presbyterian brothers and sisters see this differently than us. We are Baptists. We don't baptize anybody until they, get, until they have a profession of faith, and then we baptize them. But Presbyterians see baptism as an extension of the covenant, and so they baptize their children. They have a theological reason for it. I don't agree with it, but they have a theological reason for it, and that's why they do it. Now, they also do believer's baptism for people who convert, but they believe that's part of what they do. And so with that being said, we will affirm them as brothers and sisters in Christ, right? You know, John MacArthur is a Baptist. R.C. Sproul was a Presbyterian. You see what I'm saying? They had differing points of view. Close fellowship did things together, but guess what? We're not going to baptize people's babies here in the church. Right? And we wouldn't expect for them to ask us to do so. So it would create some kind of a division. That's a second-order doctrine. And then you have third-order doctrines, like eschatology. The end times is important. We should study it. It is a way for us to know Christ better and his plan for us. But it's not a text of orthodoxy, and it shouldn't be a reason for churches and church families to get divided over the sad news, though, is for many, because of a lack of grace and for, in, you know, that some people will actually not have fellowship with other people who have a differing point of view. Or they will just want to argue and be, and be upset. And there's strife that's created as a result. The truth is, we all, every one of us, need to be humble enough to realize that there are a lot of smarter people than us that see it differently than we do. And we need to be humble enough to realize that there are people out there in the ministry that has fruit in their life that far exceeds our own who see it differently than, than us. We ought to be humble enough to admit that we don't know all the answers and grace, grace for everyone that we, that we disagree with. Because let me just tell you the truth. Not everybody in this church sees it the exact same way. There are people that even would say that they believe a certain way and once you pull the threads, you realize they actually don't believe exactly what they're, what they're saying. And that's okay. So in light of all of that then, how then would we as a church humbly approach this text, this difficult text to glean from it what God would have us to know and to become more like him? Well, the first thing is we need to come to terms with the fact is that this text has its own context. 
Every text has a context. This has its own historical context. It has its own cultural context. It has its own political context. And what we need to just affirm is that context was connected to Jesus and the disciples and that conversation that's taken place there. And we also need to affirm that it's connected with Mark and the audience that Mark was writing to in the first century. This text has a meaning that the first century audience would have fully understood. So we need to seek to understand to the best of our ability what this text meant to them. That we seek to understand what what it meant to them so we can understand how it should apply to us properly. Secondly, we need to come to terms with the fact that the following text, the following text after today, as we dive into this discourse, verses 5 and on, Jesus will speak prophetically about future events. The words are apocalyptic. He is predicting things that had not happened yet in the moment he spoke them. That is clear. What is not clear, though, is exactly the timing of how those things are going to get fulfilled, which leads to three basic perspectives. You don't have to memorize them. I just want you to, see it, to have a context for where I'm coming from. The first one, some people will say that Jesus, everything that he says in this particular text was fulfilled in AD 70 when Rome finally broke into Jerusalem and actually destroyed the city. Everything that Jesus was talking about, they believe, was fulfilled in that time frame, that it's all in the past. On the other hand, people will look at this and say, well, none of that actually was fulfilled. It's all distant future. In fact, none of that's even happened yet. Some people take that view. It's the complete opposite. And then the third perspective is some believe that what Jesus said, many of what he, much of what he said was fulfilled in AD 70, but there was some future fulfillment in some of the elements of what he said. Some of the things, he, he, things have happened, but some of the things are still to happen. Now, I realize I'm oversimplifying the perspectives because I'm telling you, if you want to like drive, dive down a rabbit hole of perspectives and get lost, this is a place to do it. Right. So I'm just simplifying for you, okay? But, but after eight years of studying of this issue, I lean towards the third option. Right? I think a lot of what Jesus said was fulfilled in AD 70 because it seems pretty clear but I also believe that there are implications for the distant future as well that have not happened yet. In fact, one of the commentaries I read, Tremper Longman actually does a good job summarizing, I think, what I would, how I would view this, as of, by the way, August 29th, 2020, okay? Because I'm not saying that it won't change. He says, the best solution may be to see this discourse as intentional prophetic merging and overlap of two events, the destruction of Jerusalem and his his second coming, and the goal of viewing one as a pattern and a model for the other. In other words, what he's saying is, it's probably best to, to realize that the destruction of Jerusalem is a model for the time when Christ is to return. He further says the merging and the near and remote fulfillment is characteristic of Old Testament prophecy, so we should not be surprised to find, that Je find it in Jesus' prophetic sayings. Again, more clearly, what he's saying here is we find the same dynamic in the Old Testament. We see where there's a prophecy given, and it's literally fulfilled in that time, but then it is also prophetic of something that, that gets fulfilled in Christ later on. We shouldn't be surprised, then, that Jesus himself would use this same type of prophetic utterance. This is my current perspective on how, and this is how I'm going to approach this text with respect to prophecies that Jesus makes here. That's where I'm coming from. So you want to know what, what angle I'm coming at? That's the one. All right. 
But most importantly, what we need to keep in mind is the fact that chapter 13 must, you know, may be apocalyptic, but it is unlike all other apocalyptic books because it contains so many exhortations and instructions for his disciples. You see, Jesus, not, he's not just telling them what's to come. He's telling them how to live in light of what's to come. The entire chapter is filled with exhortations and admonitions. Christ is telling his disciples what they need to do in light of future events. Longman, I'll quote him one more time, notes that there are 19, 19 imperatives in the, the text coming up, making it clear that this discourse's main purpose was not to satisfy curiosity about future events, but to give practical ethical teaching. He's preaching to his disciples and preparing his disciples and, and the church beyond to live and to witness in a hostile world. That right there, that's how we're approaching this text. The way that we're going to deal with the text we're going to do so by asking the question, how is Jesus in this text preparing us to live today on mission and witness in a world that hates us? That's how we're going to look at this text. And so in light of that, I want you to know right up front, I probably are not going to be able to answer all your end times questions. Right? By the way, you know, it's a popular subject too with Asif. Like he's always asking me. And I'm like trying to point him back to the scriptures and make him do his own homework. Now understand, I'm not going to answer all your questions. I'll probably even create some questions. And if you learn something that actually helps you feel better about this and have a better handle on it, praise the Lord. But that's not my aim. My aim in the spirit of this series and the spirit of what Jesus is doing here is to share with you what it means to follow Christ in light of these texts. How are we going to live as the world continues to grow darker? And so with that extended introduction, and I pray that people will do me the service of listening to this and not having to repeat much of this next week. Now you know why there's only like two and a half verses, right? <laughs> Turn with me to Mark, to chap Mark chapter 13. Beginning in verse one, it says, and he came out of the temple one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. The first thing that we need to notice, again, is the word and. This is important because it tells us this is a continuation of the same day. This is a context thing. We need to remember this is the same day. It's Wednesday of Passion Week. This is a continuing action of what he's been doing in the temple all this time. What we need to realize is this has been a long, eventful day and a long and eventful week that began when Jesus rode into Jerusalem triumphantly on the back of a donkey in fulfillment of specific prophecy, declaring by his own actions that he is the Messiah and King. The second thing I want you to notice is that it says that he came out of the temple. So we tend to think very literal and, and linear, okay? But that doesn't mean that he came out of the actual sanctuary of the temple. I used to think that that's what it meant, that he was actually coming out of the sanctuary. That's not what it means. He's actually leaving the temple complex. He's actually leaving, the whole complex was called the temple, right? Which means he has left the temple grounds. He's probably, him and his disciples have exited the east gate of the temple toward the Kidron Valley as they make their way to the Mount of Olives, to the east. 
And this is important because Jesus now, I want you to realize in the flow of this text, right, that Jesus has now left the temple for the last time. He doesn't come back. This is important, which means, number one, this is a transition in the story. It's a major transition. Things in this narrative are transitioning again. But Jesus leaving the temple and going to the Temple Mount of Olives will also give bigger prophetic implications as we're going to see at the end of this, this, this text. Now, as they leave the complex, as they're making their way out, one of the disciples, we probably think it's Peter, you know, because Peter always says something when he's nervous, right? Always says the weirdest thing at the weirdest time. He says, look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And again, this is, this is in English is, it's an understatement of epic proportions. This is another example of when you read the Bible, you need to be aware of the fact that there is an economy of reporting, meaning that they communicate a lot with very few words because the gospel doesn't actually give you the full breadth and picture of what that means. There is a context here. And the truth is, as I've read over this text many times, I've never actually paused to think about what, what the disciple was actually communicating. I just thought, oh, cool, buildings, nice. They're, they're beautiful, they're pretty, right? He is actually saying much something much greater than that. He's saying that these buildings are absolutely glorious, which itself would be an understatement. The temple he's referring to is not just the building that's on the Temple Mount. It is the entire complex. It is the entire Temple Mount. And he's talking about a huge architectural and artistic wonder of the world. Really unrivaled. The temple grounds were 500 yards long to accommodate the throngs of people who would come. You realize how big that is, right? 500 yards, less five football fields put together. And it consisted of huge outer courts of the Gentile, and then you had the inner courts of the women's court, and then the court of Israel, and then the court of the priests, which inside of the court of the priests was the, the gigantic altar, right? And then inside this court also stood then the crown jewel of the entire complex, the temple sanctuary itself which was exquisitely and elaborately decorated. It was this huge edifice on top of this huge mount. And each courtyard was surrounded by, by walls of hand-worked stone and ornate metal gates. The Temple Mountain was, was one of the wonders of the world at that time. In fact, the historian Josephus in the first century, who actually saw it with his own eyes, he wrote this. He says, the exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astonish either mind or eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look were compelled to avert their eyes as from solar rays. He says, like looking at the sun. To approaching strangers, it appeared like a from a distance like a snow-clad mountain. For all that was not overlaid in gold was of the purest white stone. And some of the stones were 45 cubits length, 5 cubits high, and 6 cubits in breadth. Understanding that a cubit's 18 inches, you do the math. 
The temple complex was the prized jewel of all of Jerusalem. It was the prized jewel of Judah. It was the, the prized jewel of Israel itself. And people came from all over the world at that time to see it. One rabbi said, if you've not seen the temple, you have not seen anything really beautiful. It was the center of the Jewish world. And this glorious building, this, this glorious complex was, was awe-inspiring to behold. And it took up one-sixth of the city's entire landmass. 17% of Jerusalem was the Temple Mount. That's how big it was, right? And it had stones the size of rail cars. Massive. And they were stacked on top of each other. And they were dazzling white, and gold was everywhere. And it took 40 years, nearly, I mean, over 40 years to, to build it. This was a wonder that would make the other wonders of the world pale in comparison. It was an engineering and artistic marvel. This is not just some religious building. This was a spectacle. And that's what this disciple was referring to. It's like, look, Lord, look at this glorious complex that our people built in honor of our God. Look how amazing it is. God must be happy with this house. He must be pleased with something that looks like this. This is befitting of a king. And Jesus said to them, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This is another example of of where the, the story takes an unexpected turn. Because again, if you remember, these disciples still were battling partial spiritual blindness. They're still holding on to the idea that somehow, someway, Jesus is going to be king on earth. And he's going to have an earthly kingdom. And he's going to rule as the king of this little nation. And they're going to be VIPs in this little country. And the temple complex would be then the, the crown jewel of his entire kingdom. It would be a symbol of his, of his kingship. It would be a symbol of Israel's favor with God. It was a symbol of her glory and might under the leadership of the Messiah. They really had expected that this would stand forever. And, and Jesus says something that they just would have not expected in a hundred years. He said that the temple is going to be completely destroyed. In fact, he's really very specific here. Very, very detailed, specific. He says there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Which means that this glorious architectural wonder will be completely and totally and thoroughly destroyed. That's what he's saying. This is the prophecy that he utters. By the way, it was literally fulfilled in AD 70. Such a convincing example of Jesus' prophecy that the early church fathers used it as an apologetic method to prove that Jesus was in fact a true prophet. Because, they, because Mark was written before A.D. 70. They could prove that. And then the temple was destroyed in the same detail that Jesus said. You see, the Roman army surrounded the city of Jerusalem because of Jerusalem's final rebellion. And they besieged the city. And they finally, in A.D. 70, broke through under the leadership of General Titus and destroyed the entire city of Jerusalem and killed nearly all the inhabitants inside the bloodshed was of epic proportions. 
But the thing is that there was a special attention that General Titus wanted to pay to the temple. His orders were to raise that thing all the way to the ground. They were instructed to completely and totally annihilate that structure. And they systematically then began to destroy the buildings and set fire to the temple. And then they toppled over literally every single stone in order to pry them apart. Why? Because the gold melted and fell in between all the seams and the cracks. And they flipped over and pulled apart all of the stones. They were so thorough that if you were to go to the temple mount and try to figure out how the buildings were actually situated, you can't actually find any trace of them at all. Herod's temple was completely effectively wiped off the face of the earth as if it didn't even exist. The Romans made a point to destroy this monument because it stood as a symbol of their nation. It stood as a symbol of their very identity as a people. And and the Romans were sick and tired of the Jews and their rebellion. They were sick and tired of their God. And they wanted to eradicate their identity and their sense of, of national pride. They destroyed the physical, tangible object that connected them to their sense of divine favor and divine power. They destroyed the place where God was seen to be present with his people. And this was an act of revenge and an act of humiliation of that that culture. And Jesus predicted the event within 40 years of, of chilling accuracy. But here's the part that that we got to come to terms with. He didn't just see it. He didn't just predict it. Being the sovereign Lord, he ordained it. This is part of his plan. Hear me, church. This is important for us. God ordained for Jerusalem to be sacked and for the temple to be torn down. It was by his will that it was done. Now, why would God do that? Why would he allow that? Why would he ordain that? I mean, the temple was created by God's command to Solomon. It was, he said to build it. He wanted the temple created. He created it after the design of the tabernacle that he ordered to be created in the desert. This was God's house. It was was a symbol of a relationship between him and his people. It was a visible symbol that God was present with his people. And it was the place where he ordained in the law that people were to come and worship him and to make sacrifices to him. It was here that the nation of Israel was to lead all of the rest of the world into worship of God. This was the temple that he created that was created in his name by the people who believed that they were his covenant people who lived, they thought, to worship him. This temple was something that they were proud of, something that they were excited about. This was something that represented who they were. Their identity was connected to this, to this temple. It was something that they felt connected to God through. So why then would God purposefully destroy it? Well, that right there is why the context of everything we've been talking about for the last several weeks is important. God destroyed the temple along with the religious leaders eventually in the entire nation of Israel because they were unfruitful. That's the reason. They were unfruitful. Though they were beautiful to behold on the outside, they were barren inside and unfruitful as a result. 
Remember what happened when Christ came into Jerusalem. He came into the city and everyone celebrated the coming of the king and everybody expected he was going to be this warrior king who was going to drive out the Roman you know, army. But he doesn't do that. What does he do instead? He said he comes and he observes the temple and then comes back and he pronounces judgment on the temple and the leaders and the nation of Israel. Jesus came in judgment because, in fact, if you remember the, the event of the cursing of, of the fig tree, right? He, he walked by this green tree and saw that it had no fruit and he used it as a living parable. The tree did not have any fruit on it, though it was beautiful to the eye. This, like the temple, was beautiful, and la- but it lacked really what God was looking for, fruit. And so Jesus cursed it for its lack of fruit, and it was destroyed. This was a symbol of what God was doing to, going to do to Israel. And remember what happened inside the temple itself. Right? What happened in the temple courts. Jesus then, he goes in and he drives out the merchants and the money changers. And what does he say? He said the temple is supposed to be a place for prayer for who? The nations, Jews and Gentiles alike. This is a place where the world was to come to worship God. And now he said that you made this place a den of robbers. This became a a place where the nations were excluded as Israel and her leaders put on a show to demonstrate outwardly their righteousness. They looked beautiful on the outside. They fulfilled all the external requirements of the law, on the outside, the beautiful place became, you know, a swap meet where people didn't have to be inconvenienced so to go to the Mount of Olives to buy their, their, their sacrifice so they can fulfill that external law and where they can actually change their money and, and be righteous externally. This is a place of self-centered greed instead of fulfilling the calling that, that Israel had to be a light to the Gentiles. Though they appeared beautiful on the outside, they were thoroughly and totally unfruitful. And what Jesus says about the tree, what does he say about good trees that bear bad fruit? They are torn down and thrown to the fire. Jesus pronounces judgment upon the temple and the religious leaders and Israel. And Jesus now begins to tell the disciples how that judgment is going to actually come about. He pronounced judgment, and now he's telling them, this is what you can expect to happen. And I want you to notice what happens next. It says, and he, and as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Now, I stop there because, again, this is a detail that we can overlook. Jesus, after leaving the temple complex, comes to the Mount of Olives and sits and after, his, after this, his disciples are going to ask him some big questions, and he's going, to, he's going to teach them through the Olivet Discourse. But I want you to think about what's actually happening here. Jesus leaves the temple, goes through the east gate, and then comes to rest on the Mount of Olives. This is not an incidental detail in the story. This is a direct allusion by God through Mark to the, to the text of Ezekiel chapter 10 and chapter 11. Right? which, by the way, chronicled how the glory of God left the temple at that time that symbolized God's judgment upon Israel. It is the same reflection. 
Let me read it for you. Ezekiel chapter 10, verses 18 and 19 says, But the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house, the glory of the Lord, and stood over the cherubim, and the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them, and they stood at the entrance of the east gates of the house of the Lord, and the glory of God of Israel was over them. And then chapter 11, it says, verses 22 and 23, Then the cherubim lifted up their wings, and the wheels beside them, and the glory of God of Israel was over them, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mount that is the east side of the city, that is the Mount of Olives. Brothers and sisters, who is the glory of the Lord in on the earth? It is none other than Jesus Christ. By the way, this was a prophecy that was fulfilled in that time, an illusion of something that was fulfilled in the time of Christ. This is highly symbolic and super important for us to understand. This event right here that Mark records is the, is the illusion of God's judgment against Israel for her rejection of the Messiah and for her unfaithfulness to do what she was created to do, which was to bring the world to worship. Israel and her whole religious system had fallen into moral decay despite all of their legalism. They became self-centered and abandoned the mission that they were created to accomplish. The glory of the Lord was leaving them behind. And so, yes, this text is clearly a prophecy. And this particular prophecy was fulfilled in AD 70. And though there's no longer a temple to be torn down any longer, and though this part of the chapter 13 may have already been, been fulfilled, it is still a warning. It is still a warning to Mark's readers. And it's still a warning to us today, a warning that we must heed. And the warning is this. Christ judges unfruitfulness. And though we may not be a nation, we might not be the nation of Israel, God's favor at one point in our history rested upon this country. And I believe that we were created as a nation, by his sovereign hand, to bear fruit for the kingdom of God. And I believe that this nation has done so historically. We have a long, ripe heritage of the gospel proceeding forth throughout our country and from our country. But I fear we have become like Israel. That we become inwardly focused. We have become self-centered. We become fruitless. Is there any wonder why there seems to be so much trouble in our country? Is there any wonder why the things seem to be falling apart at every direction? Is there any wonder why some of the most inexplicable, unexplainable things are happening right now? Violence and riots in the streets of the United States of America, like guerrilla warfare. People are calling wrong, right, and right, wrong. And every manner of decency is celebrated, and every manner of decency is condemned. The shooting, that's, the shooting of a suspected rapist who physically resisted arrest, who goes physically after a weapon, 
is shot and cities burn, but a little boy, five years old, riding his bicycle, gets shot in the face and nothing. Pro athletes will don the name of, of criminals on their helmets, but make no mention of the innocent who are being slaughtered. The institution of marriage is all but destroyed in our country. And the family itself is being pulled apart in every direction. And those who proclaim to be on the side of love and the side of inclusion are proven to be the most vile and profane and violent and most intolerant, especially to people who disagree. The nation that once prided itself on freedom and personal responsibility is crying out for more government intrusion with no personal accountability. Pastors and businessmen are being, being fined by the thousands of dollars for trying to provide service and take care of people, all the while criminals who engage in the most heinous, violent acts are being let go with, with no penalty. Church, our nation stands at the precipice at a place that I had no idea we could possibly get to so fast in my lifetime. We stand at the edge of the dustbins of history. The best of our history might very well be behind us. I'm not God, I can't predict that. We very possibly could be Rome in, our, in, in her final days. But do you know why that is? It's because we've become unfruitful. We've become a nation unfruitful and unfaithful. We've become a byword to God. We've become a nation that has no fear of the Lord. There was a point in history, even unbelievers still respected people who had faith and wouldn't dare say, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't dare blaspheme. But we have people on the streets, kids on the streets, who were flipping, flipping off evangelists who were just trying to love them, saying, F, Jesus Christ. We're a nation that once exported the gospel around the world, and our greatest export now is pornography and all manner of decency, and it seems to be also child sex slavery. We as a nation that are now celebrates and honors thugs and criminals, all the while we're going to slaughter the innocent by the millions. By the millions. I fear we are under the judgment and the wrath of God as a nation. But this warning is even more dire. Because I want you to notice that Christ didn't just judge the nation, he judged the temple, the outward symbol of their relationship with God. He judged the very thing that gave them their identity as it relates to him. Well, God, if he judge the temple and the religious leaders of Israel, will, we not also, will he not also judge the same in our own country? Because like Israel, we have our religious leaders who have gone astray. And, and like Israel, we have our golden edifice that we point to that's called the American church. Because that's what 
the American church has become, it's become this beautiful, golden, glorious spectacle, but it's devoid of fruit. The American church as a whole has become unfruitful. And I want you to, I want you to understand, I'm going to distinguish here. I want to be very clear here. I'm not speaking universally of every church. I'm not talking about the, the Christ, the Christian churches that are scattered out throughout the country. Um, all the hundreds and the thousands of pastors who are faithful and the members that are faithful. I'm not talking about the church that faithfully gathers and worships God and in spirit and in truth. I'm not talking about the, the churches that proclaim the gospel and have a high view of God and a high view of Scripture. Right? I'm not talking about the churches that are fruitful in evangelism and making disciples. I'm talking about what everyone else sees when they think of the American church, that edifice, that false representation that has come to dominate Christian life or the Christian landscape in our country. The American church that's a beauty and a spectacle to behold on the outside, but is barren on the inside. Because think about the American church. It has beautiful, high production value. See it across our country. Millions of dollars spent on buildings and sanctuaries. With lights and sound effects and visual effects. Glorious buildings, old ones, and new modern architectural wonders of their own. The American church is filled with colors and artwork and, and all the comforts of home. As people come to church to have an experience to be entertained. And for all the moving music and for all of the compelling testimonies that we're going to hear and for all the public good that they will do through their outward ministries, the American church has become like the temple in Israel. Beautiful on the outside, but bearing no real fruit for God. The people of the church look and say, look how glorious the church is. Look how wonderful our church is. Look how much we love God. Look, look how we, we go and we feed the, hum, the hungry people in our community. Look at all the stuff we are doing for God. But for all the external beauties that the American church is corrupt on the inside because the American church no longer sees the word of God as inerrant, infallible, and sufficient. I'm going to tell you, you read people's statements of faith, and you'll find those words are conspicuously absent. They don't want to talk about it. I've even had a pastor laugh and say, you mean you really believe that the Bible is inerrant? The American church no longer believes that Jesus is the only way. That is a staggering statistic, by the way, how many evangelicals believe that there's multiple ways to God. The American church gives TED Talks and motivational speeches, but doesn't preach the truth and the gospel. The, the American church has lost its fear of God and now fears man. And that's why the American church has flip-flopped and now agrees with the culture with respect to the, all of the LGBT alphabets. That's why... The American church is embracing wholesale the prosperity gospel. It's not always overt, but it's there. It's his sense that if I do this for you, God, you have to do something for me. That's why people in the American church can stand up and say, right, you can be a Christian, but at the same time, 
You can be in favor of child sacrifice at Planned Parenthood. I just heard a prominent Baptist preacher in Atlanta, Georgia, who says that he believes in the Bible, and he said the Bible is the Word of God, but he believes his faith is compatible to what he calls reproductive justice. What? How far have we fallen when ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ can equate the brutal, violent destruction of little human bodies by their own moms as justice? The American church as an edifice is in, the, is in the throes of a great upheaval. The greatest one I think I've ever seen. And things have just surprised me. And the issue that is now at large, the greatest issue with inside the church, that even the people are starting to see that they've been actually talking about for three years now, is the issue of race and rep- reparations. You see, the culture has taught us that it's, that it's not about reconciliation through Christ anymore inside your church. It's about a Marxist agenda that tries to split us up into little groups and separate us and pit us against one another. When Paul says that we are one in Christ, the American church is saying, no, you are not one. You're not because if you're white and you don't, you're not like the rest of us, you don't know what we're going through. You don't know what we've been through. You can't understand us. You can't possibly even be reconciled to us. The church, pastors and churches are saying that if you, because of the color of your skin, you're automatically a racist, no matter what you say, no matter what you do, no matter what you think, no matter what you believe. And no matter what you do, you will never, ever, ever be able to make it right with us. That is what pastors are saying that's the conversation inside the church instead of coming to the sufficiency of Christ instead of coming to the place where we are all one in Christ where we repent and believe the gospel where all sin all sin even the sin the hateful sin of racism all sin is forgiven instead of coming there there are those inside the church who are nursing a perpetual grudge saying we know that sins were paid for by Christ except this one. This one sin the blood of Christ can't atone for. You have to personally atone for it. And you have to personally atone for the sins of your parents and your grandparents and everybody in your history. And in the process, churches are becoming more unfruitful because churches are destroying themselves from the inside out. Entire denominations. And I'm telling you, what we're seeing on the street is a result of what's happening in the church. To proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is the only hope that we have. To proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and making disciples of all the nations and go into the world, that is the hope that we have. Brothers and sisters, there is no other hope for our country. There is no hope for America but one, and that is the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his righteousness that he gives to us. Now, do elections have consequences? Yes. Temporally, they do have consequences. In the short term, Yes, but hear me. Our long-term hope for your transformation and for the transformation of our country is not going to be who's going to win the next election. It's not. 
And as long as we Christians think that that it is, then we have lost sight of who we really are and the power that we have to change the world. Our long-term hope is going to be and will always be Jesus Christ. The hope that we have in this moment is to put on sackcloth and ashes and repent before God and become the people that he's calling us to be and bear the fruit that he's created for us to bear. Will we stand up and be the people that God is calling us to be? Will we be the church that God is calling us to be? This is the question that we have to ask. This is the hour that we decide whether or not we believe the things that we actually believe and live for the things that we actually say that we live for. And this question leads us to the place where I normally like to go on a Sunday after our our anniversary Sunday, which is Vision Sunday. It's fitting that our text takes us here to consider these things about who we are as a church and where we're going. I don't want to be the American church as the world sees it. I have no interest in that. I have every interest in seeing all of you grow to be the disciples God is calling you to become. Seeing you go out and share the hope of Christ and watch people come to faith in him and watch lives and families become transformed by the power of Christ. That's what I'm interested in. And so I want to remind you of who we are. As the darkness continues to fall in our country, we need to remember who we are. The mission of First Baptist Church is to glorify God by creating spiritually maturing Christ followers. That's our mission. That mission is accomplished through our vision. And our vision is this. We're a loving community of Christ followers, passionately in pursuit of Jesus, deeply connected with one another, and completely committed to sharing the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world. Now let me just unpack that just briefly for you. I want you to really think about these things. Because as you watch the news, you're going to see... What I'm saying resonates. We're a loving community. By the grace of God, we have been entered into a community of believers who are loving. It's only by His grace, by the way. Because love defines everything we do. All that we do is to be done in love and out of love. As the Apostle Paul says, the aim of this charge is love. And this love is expressed toward God continually to the best of our ability and towards our fellow church members and everyone else, including the ones that we disagree with and the ones that hurt our feelings, the ones that upset us and the ones that spit on us and the ones that make us upset. We're loving in character and that we are Christ followers. We are disciples. We're not just, you know, Christian bumps on the log that come and sit in a chair, you know, once a week and then just leave here and then come back and do it all again. We are Christ followers. We are his disciples. We are learning to be more like him, following in the footsteps he's laid out for us and going where he leads us. And we're passionately in pursuit of Jesus. Jesus, right, and his word is our passion. It is the thing that motivates us. It is the thing that drives us. He is our all-consuming passion. He's the focus of our minds. He's the focus of our hearts. He's the focus of our efforts. And he's our greatest desire. 
And we are deeply connected to one another. Brothers and sisters, this is one is so important. This is so important in light of the fact that, that the government is trying to separate us. This is so important. We are not just friends. We're not just some people who belong to the same organization. We are not just people who have something in common. We are a family. And we are called the body of Christ, which means we are part of the same body, which means individually we are part, as the Bible says, of each other. We are permanently and inextricably linked together. And we are completely committed to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world. We are a church that lives to bear fruit for the risen King. We're a church who seeks to fulfill the great commission that he has given us. We exist to facilitate everyone going out into the world, making disciples. We're committed to seeing the kingdom of God be spread to our friends, our families, our neighbors, our states, our nation, and the rest of the world. Because we are committed, because we understand that there is only but one hope for all of humankind, and that is Jesus Christ, the one who has died for our sins. We know the only hope for anyone in the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God created the heavens and the earth and us to have a relationship with him, but our sin separates us from him, and the wrath of God abides on us because of our sin, and our sin cannot be overcome by our best efforts. We can't do anything to make ourselves right with God so we are hopeless. That's the bad news. But the good news is God in the flesh, Jesus Christ came into the world, lived the life that you couldn't live, died on the cross to pay a penalty you couldn't pay, fulfilled the law on your behalf, and then bore in his body the awful and terrible wrath that God ought to give you. He took upon himself. He died in your place and three days later rose again, proving that death and sin had been permanently conquered forever and ever. Amen. And that all who believe, everyone who believes, has eternal life, and that eternal life begins the moment you believe and lasts forever. That is our hope, and all we do to receive that is repent and believe that gospel. And we are part of God's family. That's the only hope we have. The only hope we have for unity. That's the only hope we have for, for racial rec reconciliation. That's the only hope that we have for the end of the violence in the streets. That's the only hope that we have at all, ultimately. Let us be the church that takes that message as the banner of truth and goes into the world and storms the gate of hell, setting the captives free. Whether our country survives, whether it doesn't. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, all with our respected duty to do. Let us be diligent to do it. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.